Okay, alright. Okay, roll the dice. Let's do this. Okay, that's a two, another two, a four, and a three. Alright. Uh, add them up, that's 11. So, uh, you're listening to a recording from about a week ago. Episode 11. Okay, let me just look that up on the list. Um, Here's what I'm doing. Uh, I've got four dice, and I'm rolling those dice to get a number, and then cross-referencing that number with the episode list of this podcast. Why am I doing this? Well, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't have a subject for this month's podcast. So, what I thought I'd try and do is uh, I I thought I'd try and write a short story by taking the themes of two previous episodes and then smashing them together. Okay, so episode 11 is answering the form of a question. That was the episode about the TV show Jeopardy. Okay, right, well, that's the first selection. Alright, let's um, roll again. I thought it would be nice to just hand over responsibility to, to, to chance a little bit because, you know, if it turned out that a dice picked two really difficult, incompatible episodes and the resulting story was really bad, well, you know, that, that would just be fate, wouldn't it? Not the podcast episode we wanted, but the one we deserved, at least in the eyes of the gods. Five, six, three, and one. That's 15. Okay, episode 15. That's the underground kingdom. Right, yep, that's, that's, the, that's the episode about my press trip to the network of tunnels under Disney World uh, that the staff used to get around. Um, that one's a, like a true story. Actually, people thought it was made up. But uh, I, I, I swear, um, yeah, that that, that 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 actually happened to me. Okay, so that's the two episodes. So I have to try and blend together Disney World and Jeopardy. Jeopardy, Disney World. <sighs> uh, I've got, I've got nothing. You know, listening back to this recording now, a week later. I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I just fake it? What's the point of making audio-only content if you can't fake a dice roll now and then? But, uh, yeah, it's too late for that now. Huh, yeah, I I don't... I don't really know where to start. Uh, I wonder whether I should be trying to say something funny so this recording is more entertaining when we hear it back later. Yes, Ross, that's not the worst instinct in the world, is it? Maybe next time. Okay, then, uh, welcome to this, the 26th episode of Imaginary Advice. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, It's kind of a bumper episode this month. Uh, The story came in quite long. Also, I've added a poem onto the end of the podcast as well, which just felt like a nice epilogue to the story. So, here we go, smashing together two previous episodes, uh, one about Jeopardy, one about Disney World. Here is this week's short fiction piece. My name is Ross Sutherland. Um, Imaginary. I hope you like it. Advice.
The minibus was due to pick us up at dawn. It was a seven hour drive to the theme park. Our parents had packed us sandwiches for the journey and then waited with us on the corner of St Peter's Road. We waited in silence, watching the morning grow slowly above the terraces. The trip was not open to the entire scout pack. This was a special reward, exclusive to the sixes and seconders from each of the three tribes, white six, orange six, green six. At the time, I had just become seconder of white six. Head of white six was Andy Lamfrey, a year older than me in school and about a foot taller. Andy was pale, thin, a serious kid. His parents didn't even come to see him off. He arrived alone and stood away from the rest of the group, a blue shadow against the library wall. When Arcala arrived, the six of us shuffled onto the minibus in silence. I slept most of the way. I can't speak for the others. I woke to see Dean Trahane looking at me from across the aisle, dappled sunlight rippling across his ginger hair. We Sutcliffe, he said. Look. At that moment, the minibus was crawling between the legs of a giant bronze statue. From the angle, it was impossible to see the head of the giant. All the same, I knew who it was. It was a statue of English television presenter stroke media executive Noel Ernest Edmonds. We were already inside the park. Arcala made us promise that we would stay together as a group. He gave us slips of paper with his phone number on it. Arcala had a brigadier's moustache that curled yellow at the edges. He was 22. Apparently, his real name was John. The theory was that John had signed up to be Arcala in a manic episode of ironic posturing, only to find that no one was watching or cared, particularly not us. On joining our troop, Arcala quickly dropped any attempt at charisma. He spent most of his time vaping and checking his phone. My mum said he looked like a malformed waxwork of Arthur Conan Doyle. We crossed the car park together. The roller coasters were already screaming. When the wind changed, you could hear it. It sounded terrifying, like being charged by an army of ghosts. As we approached, the attractions of the first zone rose out of the blazing concrete. Soon I could read the neon signs. Radio 1 Breakfast Show Animatronic Museum. Swaparama Sphere. A brief revival of jukebox jewellery. None of which made any sense to me at all. It's the 70s zone, said Arcala. Stuart Caldings. Green seconder turned to face the group. How long are we going to stay here? Arcala didn't even look down. This is the stuff at your level. The 70s. Most of the kids' stuff is here in the 70s. I'm not a kid. It's 13, said Arcala. The Top of the Pops parade was completing its hourly circuit. 
teens dressed as pop stars of the age, miming to their hits. Barry Blue, said the tannoy. Lieutenant Pigeon. Paper Lace. Ken Booth. Golden Earring. Michaela adjusted his moustache. Was a couple of things you might like in the 80s and 90s, but he trailed off. We really should spend most of the trip here. You might not recognise the titles, but this really is the best part of the park. I don't know any of these people, said Stuart. I kicked Stuart Caldings up the arse. Watch it, said Stuart. Watch what, I said. Arkela told us to wait while he went to buy water. He was barely inside the shop when Dean Trahane put Stuart in a headlock. I kicked him up the arse again. I'm going to fucking stab you, said Stuart. Go on, I said, kicking him up the arse again. Me and Dean laughed. It was good to be on Dean's side. It didn't happen very often. Only when Dean was away from school. If Clark Buncombe was around, or Lee Smink, then forget it. But in Scouts, Dean was okay. Dean had a face that always made me think of a rat with rabies. When he was really angry, his face went the same colour as his hair. Dean released Stuart from his headlock. I'm going to the 80s, said Dean. Me too, I said. Ah, Kayla can go fuck a duck. The train to the next zone was stationed immediately across the plaza. Dean bolted for it. I followed, as did Pete Holcroft, Dean's second in command. After a few seconds, I looked back to see that Stuart Caldings was following too. It was strange. The more shit we gave Stuart, the more he put himself in our way. He would get up in our faces, follow us across the playground, even though he must have known it would always end in tears. Perhaps he was trying to conquer his fear of us. I suppose it was even possible that he thought we were friends. As the bullet train left the station, we looked back to see Andy Lamfrey still standing there with the green sixer, the two of them looking like a pair of pillocks, all alone in the middle of the plaza. The ride across the lake was so smooth that it felt as if the entire theme park was on a tablecloth, being pulled out from underneath us, leaving nothing but a polished blue table, the water so still we could see ourselves perfectly. How much do you know about Edmunds? Dean aimed the end of his coke bottle at me. Don't give a shit about Edmunds, I said. I came for the roller coasters. My brother came here in the 90s, said Pete, but it was a lot smaller then. You should give a shit, said Dean to me. Why? You should just know your history, that's all. He's a TV presenter. They made his Wikipedia page into a theme park. What else is there to know? Dean turned to the window and sniffed. A fog had descended upon the lake. We could see pink neon pinwheels growing on the horizon. The 80s were approaching, gliding towards us like a daydream.
Passing a large mural of Noel Edmonds flying a helicopter above Live Aid, we entered a large purple hexagonal building. The sign outside read, The Time of Your Life. As we followed the snake in queue, the tannoy system explained that the time of your life had run for three series starting in 1983. Each week, Edmonds had interviewed a different celebrity about their career highlights. The first room had an animatronic Mick Robertson, host of Magpie, talking about his part in the 1962 Midhurst Grammar School strike. In the next room, character actress Irene Handel was talking about how she cried when she first watched E.T. the Extraterrestrial. This is bent, said Dean. I saw that Stuart Caldings had his phone out, so I took it. Stuart tried to take it back, so I gave it to Pete. I can't need to know where we are, said Stuart, robot Irene Handel gurning over his shoulder. We still need to get back to the bus, remember? Why did you come with us, I said. You know what happens. Pete ran ahead, holding Stuart's phone aloft like the Olympic torch. He ran into the next room. Stuart followed on his heels. Dean and I took up the rear. We wove through the crowd, lost in our own game. As Pete ran, he held Stuart's phone to his bum and made fart noises. Dean and I joined in too. There was shouting. An old man up ahead saying something about respect. Pete immediately ducked beneath a rope and went through a door hidden behind Robot Una Stubbs reliving the day she auditioned for the film Summer Holiday. Stuart followed, as did we, careering into a grey metallic corridor. We could hear the rumble of roller coasters somewhere up above us. Dean was hooting, his voice echoing off the walls. A door barged open and we were in total darkness. I could hear Stuart wrestling with Pete, both of them grunting, Dean laughing. Go get it, shouted Pete, the sound of a phone clattering to the ground. I laughed, the sound echoing around me, returning as the sound of shrieking metal. The ground beneath me began to shake, my skin itching with static electricity. Suddenly, the room exploded into light and noise. The screams of a packed roller coaster rocketing right past my face, close enough for me to smell their sweat. Then back into darkness. Slowly, my eyes began to adjust to the light. The room was monstrous, cathedral-sized. The entire thing modelled on the insides of an old television set. Walls, floors and ceiling covered in circuitry, transistors, resistors, like a brightly coloured miniature village. In the centre of the room, a huge cathode ray tube with a roller coaster rail that curled around it in a tight corkscrew. It's the teleaddicts ride, said Dean. We must have come in the service door. We were standing on a small balcony halfway up the wall. Stuart climbed down the service ladder onto the track below. I spotted his phone stuck halfway beneath the rail. Come back, I shouted. I could hear the sound of the teleaddict steam tune coming from a nearby chamber. The ride was starting again. Stuart hesitated then abandoned his plan, climbing back up to the viewing platform. 
as he reached the top, I found myself saying, Good lad. I don't know why I said it. I'm not the kind of person that usually says things like, Good lad. It just slipped out of my mouth. Good lad. It sounds like what my PE teacher, Mr. Bennett, says whenever someone crosses the finish line. Good lad. Good lad. Good lad. Just as I said, Good lad. Stuart slipped backwards. Before he could even drop out of sight, there was another explosion of noise. Screeching metal, yelling, laughter. In the space of Stuart, there was now a strobing carriage of people, their hands in the air, the G-force pushing their expressions into a flabby grin. As soon as they came, they were gone. We stood, frozen to the spot. The roller coaster passed two more times before we had the courage to move. I looked down over the edge of the platform. There was no sign of Stuart. Not on the track, not below, not alive, not dead, not whole, nor in pieces. No sign of him at all. We exited through the service door and found our way around to the front of the ride. A huge monolith television set that towered over the stalls and shops. The ride seemed to be open for business as usual. There seemed to be no panic, no medics. If something was happening, there was no indication out on the surface level. We have to ride it, I said. That way we can see if he's stuck in there somewhere. He can't have just vanished. As we queued for the ride, holographic heads of Noel Edmonds flickered on and off around us. Can you name the actor who played Fred Quilly in the sitcom Highly High? What kind of car does Inspector Morse drive? At the front of the queue, we were handed official tele-addicts pastel-coloured jumpers, then let into the waiting carriage. I nudged Dean in the seat in front of me. You look to the left, I'll look to the right. Dean didn't respond. The ride kicked into gear. We climbed around the outside of the TV set, then entered the unit at the back, tipping into a fast corkscrew around the cathode ray. I strained to focus on the edges of the ride, looking for a figure in the shadows. It was impossible to tell up from down. I could have been looking for him on the ceiling for all I knew. I began to feel nauseous, my eyes rolling back in my head. The car shot into a narrow neon corridor lined with video clips from London's burning and one foot in the grave. Holographic Noel Edmonds' heads appeared around us. Where did Angus Deaton go to university? He barked. This is pointless, shouted Pete from the seat behind me. Stuart's gone. The pastel jumper was making my skin itch. For the rest of the ride, I just watched the back of Dean's head. I wished that I could see his face. I wished that I knew what he was thinking. We left without a word to anyone. Instead, we crossed over into the 90s zone. The wind whipped through our thin shorts. I could feel the rain on my legs. Dean strode ahead across the astroturf towards a huge, plastic, stately home. We followed in his wake. Hey, I said to Dean, what's Noel's house party? Sounds pretty cool. What do you mean, said Dean? What are you talking about? Nothing, I said. I just, yeah, it's a big 
mansion house party. Like, what else is there to say? Noel lived in the house with fellow ex-DJ Tony Blackburn, who only talked in visual puns. And Noel had one secret chamber where he waterboarded people in slime and another secret chamber full of fake money and wind. And celebrities stuck their heads out of little secret holes and did weird wordplay. And he carried out polygraph tests on strangers and he spied on his audience. That's it. Was it a show? Yes, it was a show, said Dean. Was it banging, said Pete. The house party. No, said Dean. The house parties didn't have any dubstep DJs. No one was getting fucked up on crank or slagging off in Noel's parents' bedroom. It was brightly lit. There was only one guest at a time. And in between, it was just Noel on his own doing weird surveillance shit. What's your problem, I said. Dean pulled his infected rat face. You, he said. I know you, Sutcliffe, you grass. You'll tell everyone it was me and Pete that done it. Don't look at me like that. You snitched up smink for those highlighter pens. Everyone knows it was you. Piss off, I snorted. You'll tell everyone it was us, said Dean. I know you will. I stared at them both. Maybe the pause told them all they needed to know. Fuck both of you, I said. I'm going on the gotcha ride. On my own. I pushed past them towards the giant gold statue in the centre of the zone. My heart was pulsing in my ears, but I could still hear Dean and Pete following me, Dean sniffing over my shoulder. I picked up the pace, pushing to the front of the gotcha experience. An employee with a CCTV camera sticking out of his hat pulled back the curtain and I darted inside, disappearing into the darkness. There was no roller coaster, just a thin bridge across a huge dark room. As I walked across the bridge, the sidewalls flickered to life, hidden video screens relaying my own image back to me, hundreds of different camera angles, all unflattering, accompanied by the sounds of canned studio laughter. I hurried across the bridge, catching Pete's image in the screens as I exited the room. The boys were close behind me. The next room featured a long moving walkway. On both the left and right, Noel Edmonds' mannequins holding outstretched gotcha statuettes jerked forwards and backwards through a series of doors, in and out, in and out, a gauntlet of gotchas. I broke into a run, allowing the walkway to double my speed. Noel's flying past me, left and right, in a salt and pepper blur. I looked back to see Pete and Dean closing on me, their nylon shorts zip-zipping as they sprinted me down. I hurtled into the final room, a dome with a raised stage in the middle. Alone on that stage, unbelievably, there was a tiny mime artist wearing a mask of my own face. I looked up at myself in utter confusion. Thinking back on that moment, I now assume that the cameras in the first room must record the image of everyone who enters and then send that image to be 3D printed at the end. Uh, At the time, though, I had nothing in my head but blank horror. The mime wandered back and forth on the stage, acting out embarrassing situations like getting toilet roll stuck to your shoe or farting in a lift or getting dumped, or drinking oneself unconscious. I stared up at it, dumbfounded. Pete and Dean came flying into the room, knocking the mime to the floor, halfway through a sketch about buying the wrong kind of printer cartridge.
They must have realised their mistake before the tiny mime even hit the ground. But it was too late. Three security officers were already in the room, yanking Pete and Dean from the stage. I watched from behind the door as the boys were escorted away. Perhaps if Dean had caught me, it would have been a beating, nothing more. Just something to remind me to keep my mouth shut. A blood oath of sorts. Or maybe, maybe Pete had something worse in mind. At a time I was convinced of it. Pete had a Swiss army knife. I'd seen him flexing it on the minibus, going through the various extensions and blessing each one with its own sexuality. Gay, straight, straight, gay. Ooh, he said, extending the corkscrew. I'd seen him threaten people with the knife before. What would have stopped him using it on me? What would have actually stopped him once he believed it was down to my word versus his? This was our future. One story versus another. An endless fight to destroy each other's version of events. I knew that this would only be the beginning. The security guards led the boys through a side door. I don't know why, but... I decided to follow. I wasn't ready to be alone in this place. Something about this theme park. It was impossible to think straight. I just kept thinking about that mime with my face being knocked to the floor over and over. My head was swimming. What happened to Stuart? What was happening to us? The utility corridor was bright pink. The walls covered in work rotors and safety notices. I could hear the sound of crying ahead of me. Probably Pete. I turned the corner, but they were already out of sight. More crying followed, but now I couldn't tell if the sounds were ahead or behind me. The corridor ended in a large set of plastic swing doors. On the other side, a huge dark warehouse filled with row after row of a hideous marshmallow man costume with a demented gaping grin. Blobby suits, of course. The only thing I knew about Edmonds before my arrival. Mr Blobby, Edmonds' impetuous supernatural bodyguard. Here was a room with hundreds of them, a decommissioned army. The Blobby suits stared at the far wall with such intensity that I decided I had to investigate it myself. There, at the end of the room, a service lift. Hearing voices nearby, I quickly ducked into the lift and let it carry me down, deeper, into the facility. Minutes passed. When the door finally opened, I found myself inside another vast room. I used a torch on my phone to light my path. To my astonishment, it appeared to be another theme park. This one, long condemned, rotting pasteboards and ancient roller coasters, rusting away to nothing. Edmonds had first tried to make his own theme park back in the 90s, a short-lived enterprise hampered by visitor numbers and legal disputes. Perhaps... This new theme park was built directly upon the site of the old one. Or perhaps this was just another exhibit 
built specifically to represent that period of Edmund's career. I wandered through the burnt out husks of food stalls, a series of pink cottages with smashed windows, graffitied with giant penises. The battery on my phone was low. I pushed on through the abandoned park, looking for another way out, perhaps some way into the next zone. Soon my phone was dead, and I was guiding myself with nothing but the feel of rubble beneath my feet. The darkness consumed me, pathless and infinite. Before long, I started to forget who I was. All I knew was to keep pushing forwards. It was the only instinct I had, forwards through time, forwards through the career of a light entertainment visioneer. A man who had dedicated his life to giving people what they wanted, even before they knew they wanted it. Surely, as we approached my own era, the world would start to make sense, right? Of course it would. Noel would give me what I wanted. He would show me what I needed. Somewhere ahead of me, I noticed a dim red light. As I approached, I realised that it was a symbol, a shape cut into a door with a red light beyond. At first, I thought it was the letters SS, but getting closer, I realised the symbol was supposed to be seen from the other side of the door. It was the number 22. I stepped through the door, into the glowing red room. The room was circular. The walls covered in glass numbers that flashed on and off. It was like a slow, empty, maths disco. Silhouetted in the middle of the room, the shape of a young boy, pale, thin. It was Andy Lamfrey, head of White Six, staring up at the rows of numbers, something vast and incomprehensible going on behind his eyes. All right, Andy? Yep. Sorry about running away and all that. Andy made a momentary sour face. I looked around at the flashing numbers. Is this, you know, a ride? Andy looked at me. It's the deal or no deal numerology energizer. You just stand here until a number psychically calls to you. If you choose the right number, you win. Win what? A wish. Whatever you want, Sutcliffe. They'll grant any wish you can think of. Bollocks. No bollocks. You just have to believe in yourself. Trust me, said Andy. It's real. Over the tannoy, Noel Edmonds' voice was saying encouraging things about belief and the power of feelings. Andy, I've, uh, I've got something to tell you. It's about Stuart and... Uh, later, said Andy. Andy rarely spoke to me at Scouts, except to give orders. But whenever he spoke, you knew he was right. I emptied my mind and let my number come to me. It popped into my head almost immediately, a well-worn mantra of mine. I could see it behind my eyes, a, a shimmering symbol. 
18. The age when I could leave home, leave all this behind me. No more scouts, no more school, no more endless watching TV, flicking through the channels every night, desperate and angry. This was the real escape. 18. 18. It wasn't that far away. Like, not really. You could imagine it. Write it down on a piece of paper and put it under your pillow. Sooner or later, it would come true. 18. I believed in myself. I believed in the power of that number. It would be a do-over. Whatever had happened here at the park would no longer matter. None of it would matter. I could wish all that pain away. Okay, I said to Andy. I'm ready. We left the room through a hole in the zero. At the end of the tunnel, another chamber. This one filled with a blue 20-foot holographic Noel Edmonds. A sentinel. A granter of dreams. Our approach triggered an animation. So, said holographic Noel Edmonds, turning to me. Chosen a number. When you're ready, say it out loud. 18, I said. Something flickered in the holographic program. Sorry, that's wrong, said holographic Edmonds. Never mind. Next. It felt as if the floor was falling out from underneath me, as if I hadn't slept my entire life, and now finally it was all catching up with me. I staggered from the room, leaving Andy behind. There would be no reprieve. I was an idiot for believing there was ever a possibility of escape. The corridor seemed to sway beneath me. I reached the entrance and collapsed onto the grass outside. The air was cooler now the sun setting across the park, sending strange shadows creeping across the tarmac. Minutes later, Andy Lamfrey was nudging me with his foot. I rolled onto my front. Did you get your wish? I said. Andy looked towards the horizon. The sideways sunlight made him look like a kid from the movies, his gaunt look now, somehow, achingly chic. Sorry, he said not allowed to say I tried to get to my feet fuck this place I said why would anyone come here it's neither funny nor entertaining someone just took a weird idea and ran with it and it just goes on and on and on I mean what's the the point of it of any of it I don't know said Andy but you're just probably overthinking it We stared out across the park together. Andy squeezed me on the shoulder. We need to head back to the minibus. I... I I can't go, I said. I mean, I I hate this place, but but I, I, I can't turn back. Not now. You have to, said Andy. 2010 onwards is adults only. He nodded towards the enormous biosphere across the path with armed security at a turnstile. The dome was luminescent green, inside a roll of screams and screeching metal. It sounded like a really good roller coaster. No, I said, 
heading for the turnstile. I have to see this through to the end. I have to. Andy pulled me back, a bent flyer now in his hands. You think you could take what's in there, he said. The whole zone is modelled on the guy's latest fears and obsessions. It's basically a giant wind farm, as far as I understand it, except the fans are blowing some kind of neurotoxin around that somehow makes you terrified of everything. Look, 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 it says right here, you will never again be able to look at a propeller without bursting into tears. Not only that, this is also the decade when Edmund starts to believe that people turn into floating energy balls when they die. Look at this room here. Energy harvester. Do you think you can handle that? What about this one? Wi-Fi smog purger. I mean, you can see why Arcala wanted to keep us in the 1970s. I mean, this place is starts all arts and crafts, psychedelic sweetness. But this is where it ends. Fucking crazy town. Okay, I said. It doesn't sound fun. I get it. But I still need to see it because... Because maybe that's just what happens when you get old, you know? Like, we grow up and and we get a little crazy. You see, that's what I've learned from this place. As you get older, you make mistakes, terrible mistakes. Like, you lose people over and over. You spend so much time trying to make people happy, but you, you, but you fuck it up all the time because people are changing all the time. Like, one minute, nothing excites them more than the prospect of gunging Dave Lee Travis. Next minute, people are breaking into your holiday home and graffitiing Mr. Blobby as a paedophile on your double garage doors. That's what I learnt from this place. Like, the universe is... It's a, it's a fickle audience. God is a light entertainment commissioner that gets sacked and replaced every six months. You can't win that game. It's no wonder that people become obsessed with hidden patterns that try to make sense of everything. We're all heading that way, mate. You don't have to be Noel Edmonds to get here. Like We're all going to end up in places like this, building some kind of final monster a fight something that we can blame for everything that went wrong i mean yeah for edmonds it's an immigrant invasion arriving on the back of a giant flying wind farm and that's very specific to him but we, we all have our own imaginary monster waiting at the end of a line and now i think i need to find mine Andy flicked the hair from his eyes. You're quite verbose for a 13-year-old. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of growing up today. I turned and began the approach to the final zone. This time, Andy didn't follow me. All the same, I kept him in my mind as I walked away. I found myself imagining him all grown up, the CEO of a company, perhaps, on an aeroplane or somewhere. White Six Holdings Incorporated, White Six Ventures and Acquisitions, Andy Lamfrey settled in the countryside, two kids, a long gravel drive where ducks wandered in the moonlight, Andy Lamfrey with his corner office and his espresso machine and his wife in a wax jacket. His wish came true, I knew it did. Wishes would always come true for people like Andy Lamfrey, whatever his system was. He wasn't telling.
The queue to the final zone was short. The people here seemed twitchy, bird-like. One man was counting his knuckles over and over. A young woman was scribbling out words from a newspaper. A quiet mole man was rubbing a pendant between thumb and forefinger. Every one of them seemed to be there on their own. Whether they arrived with others, who could say? They looked to me like failed quiz show contestants. First round ejections, desperate to be allowed back into the game. As the queue lurched forwards, I found myself thinking about my favourite book as a kid, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I'd read that book almost every year since I was old enough to read the story of a young boy who enters a madhouse and has his colleagues picked off one by one. Just like a slasher movie, really. A chocolate factory of horrors. It always struck me as strange that after surviving to the very end, beating all the horrible fates that destroyed his companions, Charlie's prize was to stay forever. Like he inherits the chocolate factory rather than getting to escape the labyrinth. The labyrinth just gets reclassified as his home. The prize for outrunning the nightmare is just to become part of it. Not only that, but most of the chocolate seemed rank anyway. I mean, how could any of this be a satisfactory ending? And yet, somehow, it was. Up close, I could see the shadow of the wind turbines churning beneath the crest of the dome. Another loud roll of screams rang out, like a series of theatre balconies collapsing. The murmurs from the queue got louder. Up ahead, I watched as extra security arrived at the turnstile. They were changing over the detail, swapping their automatic weapons. If I was ever going to have an opportunity, surely this was it. I closed my eyes. No one would stop me when I ran. I felt that deep inside me. Noel believed that the body was nothing more than a container of universal energy. And all that energy has to go somewhere. That's what he said. Like turning into floating spheres that can somehow only be recorded in digital photographs. But if Noel believed it, then maybe I could too. I'd followed his whole life like a blueprint. And as I rushed towards the guards, my future rang out in my head like a bell. Now, at last, I was the only one left. That's how I knew I was home. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the chocolate room. Imaginary advice. Hold your breath. Make a wish. 
See the theme park silhouette, a mash of shadow puppets, grids that rise up from the black to form a fitful penciled graph. See the concrete smeared with ash, the bumper cars now snarled and ivy, cursed tattooed T-Rex in background, carriage shaped like giant fish, see in mouth peering out of dead hedgerow. See the drained artificial lake, the car park where a gold mist gathers, arcades black as pharaoh's tombs, as ten ducks waddle into view. Nest, a broken plastic satin, mother followed by nine young, a line of frosted sugared lemons. See the rusty plastic planet, plaza flecked with duck shit stars, See the rotting pasteboard selling tours of space, the courtyard vast. Mother duck leads ducklings north, food court sharp with smashed ceramics. Past flood-damaged turkey shack, a blackened, rain-soaked bonfire stack. Polystyrene clamshells gape as ducklings fight the bacon-scented northern winds. Single file, they map their journey, unpicked, trailing, yellow string. Mother duck like Sharon Stone, eyes the sunrise, pink like treat, first light turning, sock grey sky to raspberry swirl. Duckling shadows barcode past, see the ghost train half collapsed, ducklings crossing right to left. Egyptian mummy, cursed face down as if mid-push-up, half unwrapped, a bandage caught in wind, a line that whips across the duckling's path. Mother duck makes course correct, ducks now moving north-northwest, black flag ripples, single quack, ducks move slow now, straight ahead, a smashed greenhouse, an atom sketched upon an arch. Fake hills of roller coaster give the park a distance it can't grasp. Sea ducks moving through the rubble, glittered claws of broken glass, sat upon an upturned bin, a six-foot bear, animatronic, barely slashed, its rusting guts exposed, perhaps moved here, from a different zone, though why or how remains unclear. Mother Duck pauses the trail beneath the makeshift plastic throne, fluffs her tail, the youngsters beeping in its shade. This was not, nor will it ever, be the place they thought they'd stay.
Okay, so uh, that's the end of Imaginary Advice for another week. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, uh, there's a uh, patron page set up specifically for that purpose. That's that's patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, so if you wanted, you can use that website to set up a small monthly donation uh, to the podcast. Uh, if you're interested, I'll, 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 as usual, I'll put the link in the liner notes of the episode. Uh, if you can't give uh, a, a monthly donation and you would prefer just to give like a one-off uh, donation, you, you can do that also. Um, I, I feel the best way to do that is to purchase my spoken word album. Uh, through Bandcamp uh, it's set up so you can pay whatever you like for it anyway I'll put all this information at the uh, uh, on, on my website that's imaginaryadvice.tumblr.com uh, a huge thank you to everyone that supported the podcast so far it's so appreciated and you know I want to keep I want to keep doing it I really do you know after all you know if I don't turn the career of Noel Edmonds into a nightmarish theme park where boy scouts turn on each other and lose their mind then who will I uh, I think we all know the answer to that anyway I'll be back soon with more imaginary advice thanks for listening <laughs>